Anytime I'm meeting another human being, I'm an ambassador for a lifestyle of being Catholic and of embracing the dignity of the human person, which includes the person that I'm meeting with and trying to understand their perspective, their view, the things that they get excited about and the, the reason they get up in the morning. This is a good person in front of me. And so I want to get to know them and I want to be able to communicate to them, hey, here's why I'm passionate about this. Cause you know, you probably care about human beings cause you're human and I care about human beings. So we can come together on that. What's the role of secular politics in the church's mission and social teaching? How do we, as Christian citizens, interact with the legislative process to advance solutions to the challenges we're facing in a divided nation? This week, Catholic lobbyist Molly Sheehan shares what it means to be a Christian advocate inside the secular political system and how she's embraced the mission of advancing human dignity in both receptive and inhospitable places. So often, I think, uh, when it comes to, to the, the conversation around abortion, uh, people automatically assume, well, okay, communities of color need abortion or you know, low-income women need abortion. And that's, that's so wrong. It actually is a symptom of privilege to say that women of color want abortion because it's not true. The, the polling shows us that, that these are exactly the communities that are most opposed to abortion. And so honestly, it, it angered me that we're trying to promote abortion in the names of women that don't want it at all. By involving ourselves in the decision-making of our society, we can be part of the process to heal our culture and help orient others from the temporal to the eternal. This is Living the Call. Molly Sheehan, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's so great to have you. Did you finish your uh, cross-country uh, journey? I did. I made it all the way from Maryland back to Sacramento, California. Nice. Not the first time you've done that trip. No. From what, what you told me earlier. <laughs> nope. Done it a few times. You actually did it. Did you do it walking, you told me? I did. I, I walked from San Francisco, California to Washington, D.C. in college um, as a pro-life walk with Crossroads Pro-Life. We uh, mm -hmm. wore these bright yellow shirts with big letters saying pro-life on them. And um, yeah, I walked, we trying to answer the call of John Paul II to go to the highways and byways and proclaim a culture of life and a civilization of love. And so we're like, cool, we'll just, we'll do it with our feet. You know, it was. So you were like literally the highways and byways. Literally. Yeah. It was and And is incredible. that, is that like an actual walk? Like you're literally just chunking up and you're walking with your feet all the way coast to coast. Yeah, so you you it's kind of a relay throughout the day. You walk three miles, someone else walks three miles. It was a team of nine people, and we'd stay in an RV at night. And it was, yeah, best summer of my life for sure. Oh, awesome. And it, so as you're walking, then the person, the, the rest of your team is in the RV kind of following you as you walk or yeah. meets you at the next stop? Yeah, and we had a support vehicle too. So they'd be, you know, either in the suburban trying to catch up on sleep while you walk yeah. up three miles and then they'd walk up three miles. Uh, yeah, it was, it was quite an adventure. A lot of people don't know the effects that walking, it seems like a you know fairly low friction you know activity, but sustained periods of walking have like a dramatic effect, right? Um, I, I, I know just from seeing, I've never done it, maybe you have or you want to, the, the Santiago de Compostela walk. I've never done you know it, what I'm talking about? but yes, it's, yeah. it's similar to that. So personally, I ended up walking about 500 miles that summer. And so, um, is just, that all Molly? Just that, you know, not, not that big a deal <laughs> as a team. We walked the full distance of the United States. And so it's about equivalent personally to doing the, the full, um, Camino de Santiago and yeah, yeah it, it, you, we were supposed to offer up, you know, every mile and pray rosary every few miles. And like that sacrifice really gets deep into you, especially when your legs start hurting, your feet get blisters. You're like, yeah. okay, all right, this is why we're doing this. Well, that's what I was referring to is like, you see those pictures from the Santiago de Compostela walk. And I mean, these folks and they're, you know, people are wearing the right shoes and the right socks. And nevertheless, after walking for weeks, I mean, these people walk, you know, one or two months sometimes, right? Your feet, your whole body is, uh, I mean, the impact of that is is really amazing. You know, we take for granted, like, you know, cultures in the past, like, that's just how you got around. Yeah. And yeah, I was, the first couple of weeks were the hardest for sure. Because you're, you start walking and you're like, oh, my feet, my feet, 
are not ready for this. Like they were not expecting this, but uh, here we go. You know, gotta gotta get those miles in. And oh man, so so fun though. Ultimately, see a lot of you know fun people, people hawking their horns or saying crazy things. And ultimately, you're like, okay, this is this is what it's about. On balance, was it more crazy things or more kind of encouragement? Did people know why you were doing it? Like, was that evident if you if I drove by you? So you, your shirt says pro-life, but people are like, what are you crazy kids doing? Like, why are you walking in the middle of nowhere in Nebraska, you know? And so right. you get to tell them. They pull over on the side of the road. Some people would bring us water sometimes. It was very sweet. Um, yeah, so it was, it, was, it was mostly nice things that I ended up encountering. Um, I know hmm. other folks that have done it have had a lot more negative experiences with with people on the side of the road but no i, I most people were really just intrigued and and kind mm. of stunned you know because it's it's not a normal thing that people do so it was yeah it was incredible was there a particular part during that how long was it you said three months so the full summer three months yeah. holy smokes okay was there a particular moment in that three-month journey that like stands out in sort of starker relief than others uh i you know i think just, I would say, honestly, being in Nebraska and encountering the people there, I had never met such wonderful, kind people. And, mm. you know, there was one lady who came up to us after mass because we would go and speak in churches on the weekends and explain to them what we were doing and um, fundraise for our sunscreen and food and everything. And the this one lady came up to us and she had this giant tray of cookies and she said you're walking for jesus you get all the cookies <laughs> we were just thrilled it was like this is this is what we need you know fuel for the road i got to imagine you also saw some pretty amazing kind of natural um you know sites right i mean it's like so much of what our country that people don't recognize i get asked all the time like because I've, I've i've had the the blessing of being of traveled to a lot of countries 35 or so and people always say like, oh, well, where should I go to next? And I'm like, Oklahoma. You know, you know what I mean? It's like there's so much of this country that most people have not discovered. Yes. We, going through the Rocky Mountains, um, you know, we were, we were driving through them at the end of the day after we'd finished our walk. And so we were going to go to our, our next stop. And so we're driving just down these massive peaks, snow-covered gorgeous mm. so we started playing soundtracks from the lord of the rings and skyrim nice. and just the whole beauty of the place was immense and majestic and impossible and yeah it, it reminds you oh yeah god created this for us and yeah what what a gift you know I was uh, last week on the show, I had the executive director, first ever Catholic executive director of Christians in the visual arts. Her name is uh, Lawan Glasscock, really super, super smart lady, archaeologist and anthropologist and the whole thing. But we talked a lot about exactly what you just said, which is, you know, we look out and it'll probably take dying and going to heaven, God willing, for us to recognize just how much talking God has done to us, with us, you know, and for us. And a lot of that talking, is in the created world, right? So like when you're walking in that amazing, you know, Nebraska, whatever, cornfield or that amazing Rocky Mountain view, we don't visualize that as God's love for us and like him actually saying, hey, I'm here, like I've written all of this for you, right? And and it's it's being outside and out in nature and in those moments of like looking out at these things that you can sort of glimpse it, you can just kind of get at a little bit of that, um, but we have a lot of just natural beauty and wonder in our own country. No, Charlie, it's so true. You look at, you know, the, the tiniest flower or the most beautiful painted sunset or, you know, really interesting animals in creation. I'm kind of obsessed with animals. This is one of my particular soapboxes is, you know, you've got platypuses or you've got elephants or puppies, like really interesting creatures. And every single mm. one reveals something about God that we wouldn't understand if we hadn't encountered that particular creature or yeah. thing in creation. Yeah, every one of these things, dogs in particular, are you, I, I think you're a dog person, right? I've seen some of your, uh, your social posts. I'm a dog person too, but I always think about like, well, what? This idea of domesticated, you know, canines or just domesticated animals, period. But specifically the canine that it's just like, I, I, I joke with my kids. I'm like, imagine if this was a raccoon or a porcupine or an aardvark, you'd be running out of the room and here you're rolling around and kissing it. And it's bizarre. Right. But you think about like what lengths God goes to like give us companions and just 
again, the created kind of world for your benefit. Yes, he wants us to know his love. And one way of expressing his love is each kind of creature. But I, yeah, in a particular way, I, I love dogs. I'm obsessed with them. And I, my family has three. I have a dog myself. So um, you just, you look at them and the way that they, you know, want to be with you and, and share your life. And um, yeah, it reveals something of God's love and, and the, his creation. So among the pantheon of creatures that are out there that orient us to God, one wouldn't normally think of lobbyist. <laughs> and yet, and yet here you are, Molly, I have no, you're the first ever Catholic lobbyist on this show. And I think most people, first of all, hear Catholic lobbyists and they're like, what? What, what even does that mean? Um, so I'm very excited to talk to you about that and learn a little bit more about it, but also kind of maybe peek in the, you know, sort of the underbelly part where maybe where it's not all beautiful and fun, but that's a really just interesting um, subject that I kind of want to dive in with you a little bit. Like, let's kind of define some terms first in terms of Catholic Catholic lobbyist, because that's a really intentional, that's what you call yourself. What What exactly is that? Yeah. A lobbyist is someone who goes and meets with legislators and represents a particular entity. So for me, I work as a lobbyist for, uh, I used to work for the Maryland bishops, now starting a job with the California bishops, and I represent them in the state legislature, particularly on life and family issues, and mm. advocate for, for things that are important to Catholics. Um, you know, just making sure that um, you know we're promoting Catholic social teaching and, and human flourishing, and that I can communicate that in a way that makes sense when it comes to legislation. So we can pass good bills that will help families and human beings to flourish. Do you have like a counterpart in the government that works with you? Is it like, you know, ambassadors and nuncios, you know how they have their corresponding person or are you directly trying to connect with legislators and folks like that? Exactly, I am the bridge between the bishops and their priorities and their vision for you know, building a better state and, and helping out people in, in their parishes to the legislature. So I go and meet with legislators, uh, you know, our state senators, our assembly members, mm -hmm. and communicate to them, you know, some of some of our priorities, uh, you know, talk to them about specific bills that we'd like to pass, or on occasion, you know, bills that we want to, to put on hold. And yeah, just try and say, hey, he, here's here's what we'd like to see happen. Um, and also try and be helpful to them. Because there's the Catholic community is massive. You know, mm -hmm. here in California, we have 11 million Catholics. We have wow. over 40 bishops. We have 13 dioceses. So it's a massive institution. We have uh, hundreds, potentially thousands of churches. And so we can provide support for a lot of things just as an institution that a lot of legislators a lot of legislators don't know. So I get to communicate that story that we're here. Mm -hmm. We do a lot of amazing things through our charities and our hospitals and our churches and our schools. And I get to tell that story to legislators and then see how we can work together to, to build up our state. Are you, as a, from a temperament standpoint, are you kind of, would you consider yourself typically, you know, particularly diplomatic or very, you know, able to deal with nuanced discussions is that kind of your thing I think so I I like I love a good fight I do but um I I, I like to to work with people ultimately mm -hmm. to, to find what's good and I think most people when they get into to politics they have a desire to improve the world they got in there because of something that motivated them that they're passionate about so I try and figure out all right what what motivates you what things made you get into this work in the first place hmm. and let's see how we can work together to improve the lives of the people in your district, in your constituency, because there are things that we can do. There's all kinds of things you can do in legislation to support families and moms and dads and their kids and our schools. You know, so many different things. It's um, it's a particularly interesting time too that we're, you know, going through. Um, you know, I, I'm older than you are, obviously, but I've never seen it in my life. And I've talked to people older than me who've never seen it in their life. So it seems to be pretty pre unprecedented in terms of, um, you know, sort of obviously polarization, but also a sense of, you know, parochial in the very, in the, in the, in the worst usage of the word, right? This kind of very 
small way of looking at things, right? That's it, it, it seems to be very pervasive right now. And a lot of it where you've got situations where legislators that, like, let's be real, in some cases, we in 10 years ago, we would have never known who some of these folks are. But now because of social media and otherwise, they've gotten, you know, bigger platforms. And on some level, it's like a lot of the the way that people approach their work in government has evolved, and I would even posit not necessarily for the better. Um, because, and, and what I mean by that is that you said, you know, people have gotten into this because they want to change the world. I agree with that. I, I, I affirm that. I think most people did get into politics and wanted to be legislators because they wanted to do something good. But then there's this like added dimension of all of this work being so visible and so contentious. And I just wonder about that if the fact that folks now have platforms in, in a way like, they wrestle with, you know, their positions or them becoming almost like brands or such and such congresswoman must stand for this guy. You know, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, is that something that you that you see where you almost feel like you're not talking to a person, but you're you're chatting with someone who's trying to support a particular position that they feel compelled to? Absolutely. I think people they are they're motivated. They have a they have a public persona that they have to uphold mm-hmm. um, and public representation but i get to see the other side you know i get to see them in their office you know the day-to-day and maybe maybe we don't agree on a lot of things you know maybe maybe that's the case but there's usually some common ground that you can find with people so i think there's a lot of polarization in politics right now there's a lot of um you know just a, a public face that that seems very unapproachable but the it's really those relationships that you have with the legislators, the you know the the way you get to know their staff and the way that you get to mm. set up meetings with them and chat with them and and find out what makes them tick, you know, find out what they're mm. passionate about. Because so for example, when I was on Capitol Hill back when I was working in DC, I worked for the Congressional Coalition for Adoption Institute, which is the Adoption Caucus. And it's the largest uh, bipartisan uh, caucus on the Hill with both houses meeting together to talk about how do we improve adoption? How do we make it easier? What are some of the barriers? And it's the largest caucus because everybody wants to help with that. And you don't hear about that in every day, but that's the case. And so there's a lot of things that make the news that are the really controversial issues that, you know, we, we tend to hear about, but it's a lot of the just the basic human needs that don't make the news because they're they're not as exciting, you know. But it's you know the things like housing and healthcare and and um, you know things that help families to flourish, like the adoption tax credit. Think these are the kind of things that people rally behind and get behind. And because they're not controversial, they don't make the news. And so you you know I get to know about them and I get to see on the day to day how these things impact the church, people in the pews. And, and how they impact the legislators too, the ones that they want to support. Because most people hmm. agree on a lot of different things. When you engage with these legislators, I assume you engage with people from all faith traditions. Absolutely. And when you engage with ones who happen to share our faith tradition and who are Catholics, is that like, it, it, and I, I ask this for a reason, but is that, are you going like, yes, this is going to be better? Or are you going like, uh-oh? I mean, I think everybody has their their own story, you know. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of Catholic legislators won't agree with me on, you know, for example, life issues, um, particularly at the beginning of life, so abortion. Um, it's it's possible that they're not going to agree with me on that. And so going into that meeting, I know that already, right? And that's okay, right? We we work long term, and I want to try and you know convince them that hey, every life matters, including unborn children and their mothers, but. In the short term, a lot of the time, even when we're talking about very controversial issues, there's things that they'll agree on uh, that you know would be problematic about certain bills. So I look at the bill itself and say, okay, whatever your perspective is on this, this here are the harms that this will do to the poor, to racial minorities, to you know what have you, the things that they are interested in. And so then we can have a conversation from that common ground. Um, but there's also a lot of legislators that you know, will agree, so Catholic legislators in particular will agree on, you know, improving healthcare and housing. And um, a lot of them are very opposed to things like physician-assisted suicide. And so they've been, you know, good partners with us on, on trying to prevent 
things that are damaging to to our citizens. I was talking to somebody just this morning about the kind of fullness of Catholic social thought when you map it against a political spectrum. In other words, you know, you kind of need to zoom out within the scope of Catholic social thought are positions that lie all along the political spectrum, right? So you can have, you know, an Orthodox Catholic who is against the death penalty as well as pro-life, someone who emphasizes um, principles of solidarity, our shared world, creation, environmentalism, and at the same time, ideas of subsidiarity, right? That I being closest and smallest to the problem and best suited to fix it. So you have this like purview as a Catholic. I got to imagine as you go in, because you're talking to people who are left, center, right, et cetera, like all over the spectrum. Do you kind of, do you kind of like set, and I, I don't want to like minimize, it's not like a strategy. I know you're not playing a game. I know you're not doing that. But do you like, do you, do you set your approach in a way on the basis of, of like that social spec uh, teaching spectrum and who you're talking to? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So a lot of it is trying to take, so I, I love Catholic social teaching. I think it's so beautiful, right? So you have this foundation of the life and dignity of the human person and, and that every person matters. Um, and that covers the entire lifespan. And, and then from there you have, you know, like you were talking about solidarity, subsidiarity, you know, that we stand shoulder to shoulder with people, um, you know, you have this this call to to creation and protection for um, and stewardship of creation, and you know, a, a particular focus on the poor and the vulnerable. So I go into these meetings with these ideas that are beautiful, but also very relatable for anyone to mm. encounter. And so I try and take that and distill it into a way that the person in front of me can understand, and put it into the language that they they use on a daily basis. So, you know, if, if we're talking about a bill that would help pregnant moms, for example, I worked on a bill that would ensure pregnant and parenting students on college campuses know their rights, that they're able to um, continue with their education, that if they need to take breaks, that's allowed, that they can't be kicked out of school. And so when I went to talk to these legislators, I'm like, look, you agree with me that this is important. You know that, you know, um, we have pregnant and parenting students that don't know their rights and that you know, this isn't fair for them. And so if you want to help these moms, and in particular, those who are poor and vulnerable, in particular, those who are racial minorities, in particular, you know, whatever it is that motivates you, this is a good bill to support. And this is something that you can get behind. Uh, hmm. So taking taking that, that vision of Catholic social teaching and putting it in action in a small bill that we're dealing with. How, how, well, how well grounded, and obviously you are, but how well grounded does somebody need to be in the actual, you know, teaching, doctrine, dogma, discipline even, of the church in order to, like, be an effective, um, you know, advocate or an effective lobbyist. Because the reason I ask that is I got to imagine some people, and maybe the maybe the least charitable of the, the times that you engage with somebody, may say, yeah, Molly, you know, that's nice, but why don't you tell the Pope to blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Like, all the kind of things you see about in in, in media, and that somehow you, as a representative of the church— are kind of like the place to plug into to provide all these commentary and or complaints or opinions. So like how well do you do you rely on what you know of the faith on like an everyday basis? I mean, I I've really tried to soak myself in Catholic social teaching and just yeah, marinate in it in order to be able to yeah, use it in order to talk this way, but I I don't know that I have like a benchmark of how much someone would need to know. I think it's more of a lifelong, constant growth in trying to understand what does the church teach? What sure. what are we called to to do? Who are we called to serve? What is the human person in the family? You know, and how do I how do I communicate that better? But sometimes when I'm talking with legislators, my favorite meeting with a legislator that was just really funny. I, I was talking to this gentleman about, you know, here are some of the things that the church does, including, you know, we're, we're advocating on behalf of survivors of human trafficking. And he said, why is the church involved in that? And I was taken aback. I'd never heard someone, you know, like be, he was the first person I'd ever met who was not totally on board with human trafficking and fighting human trafficking, because usually that's, you know, everybody's behind that. And so I was like, well, you know, we, we serve 
victims and survivors of human trafficking. And, you know, we, we want human beings to be free. And it, it was just, it was, it was funny because hmm. that's the only time I've ever met someone like that. So for the most part, when I'm talking about these things, people are just like, yeah, people get it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting though, that idea, and maybe that whole idea of not being as critical to human trafficking or not being as aware of the church's involvement in it is a byproduct. And I don't know, I'm saying, I'm just, I'm guessing, you, you tell me, but is that there's been a lot of, um, maybe not normalization, but in certain cases, more visibility given to, um, you know, things like, you know, sex work and things like that, that have been wrapped in some cases in uh, a, a packaging or veneer of empowerment of even feminism, those kind of things. And so I know I've had a couple of conversations where someone's told me, well, you know, because I, I, the overlap between human trafficking and and, uh, and prostitution and abuse is very high. I know this from working with a lot of, um, you know, in our ministries, we work with a lot of people who come from that life. So I know that the overlap is there. But I've had conversations with people who like seem to be okay with, well, that's kind of a byproduct of this this industry, which is really all a woman's right to to choose that kind of that kind of world. It, it, it is I haven't run into it very often, thank God, but it is something that I've had some interaction with. I've heard that too. And I think a lot of the time there's just a lack of awareness of how uh, the the overlap between the sex trade uh, and human trafficking is and just a lack of understanding of what what that looks like, that it's just an incredibly violent industry, that there really can't be yeah. um, a, a potential for, for consent and that, you know, you're looking at someone who, who has, you know, nine out of 10 times experienced severe interpersonal violence. And so trying to ex- explain that to someone and, you know, really distill it and be like, look, this is not something that you want to support. And, and then whatever your views on this, that when someone has, you know, experienced human trafficking, which is, you know, that by force, fraud or coercion, they're forced to engage in commercial sex acts or they're forced into um, you know, performing labor, that that's not the definition of human freedom. Nobody wants that. And we can all get behind fighting that and, and finding ways in our laws to protect uh, people from being exploited in that, in that terrible way. It's like you can find the, the common denominator, right, that people of goodwill can kind of agree to. I wonder, is there... Do you think about like when you're when you're doing the work with these legislators, are you in a way do you ever like kind of zoom out and go, I'm I'm trying to get this bill through or I'm trying to pave the way for some other conversation. And there's kind of that objective. But you're also talking to someone who may or may not be Christian, who may or may not be Catholic, who may or may not have a, a, a perspective on the church that's actually not true. And in a way, you're trying to also have that conversation, even if, even if that's not objectively happening, you know what I mean? Like it's sort of under the, the radar of what's actually happening. Do you ever, does that ever happen where you find yourself, you're kind of driving one objective, but at the same time, you're kind of advancing the, the, this sort of fullness of the faith and, and, and introducing that in some cases to people? I think so. Anytime I'm meeting another human being, I'm an ambassador for a lifestyle of being Catholic and of embracing the dignity of the human person, which includes the person that I'm meeting with and trying to understand their perspective, their view, their, you know, the things that they get excited about and the the reason they get up in the morning, right? Because this is a good person in front of me. And so I want to get to know them and I want to be able to communicate to them, hey, here's why I'm passionate about this. Because, you know, you probably care about human beings because you're human and I care about human beings, so we can come together on that. And guess what? The church cares about human beings. We know in theology, we say that the church is an expert in man. Right? She's an expert on what it means to be human, who we are and what we're made for. So I get to try and communicate that, but put it into a language that this person in front of me can understand. But I also just want to have a nice human conversation with this person and you know, find out what kind of coffee they like. And, uh, you know, because sure. they're a person and People are cool. And, you know, yeah. I, 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 I want to be friends with this person because, um, because they deserve to be, you know, to, to have a good conversation and, and to have, to have a good experience. And, and so I have to represent the church in that way too. So I have my objectives, I have my goals, you know, um, and I want to be able to try and communicate that with this person, but also just, yeah, be human with them, you know? 
when we first met, we were talking about just things that you're into. And I remember you actually said, humans are awesome. <laughs> and I was like, that's so, you know, if, like you could take like, you know, 20 tons of theological manuscripts and reduce it down to like, one, you know, three words. Those are pretty good ones right there. Humans are awesome. And reminding people of that is kind of a big thrust of what the church does. Human beings are beautiful. They really are, you know. Um, in all of their mess and craziness and silliness and and their creativity, you know, I I think having studied theology for me, it, it really drove deeper that point of how good human beings are because we're made in God's image and likeness. Uh, you know, in theology of the body, we say that you know every person is made by love, which is God, out of love, the love of their parents for love, the purpose of our entire being is to love. And so whoever I'm meeting with, that that's who they are. You know, they're made in the image and likeness of God too. And so uh, that's pretty amazing. That's legit. So I, yeah, I, I, I'm it's a true. lover of humanity. It's just, it's just every now and then, like with me, if you kind of catch me at 7am and I haven't had coffee, you have to blow off the dust a little bit, but you know, spit shine the, <laughs> the love part before you get to it. But yeah, it's all there for sure, no matter who you are. Oh, there are some people that are much more prickly, more like porcupines. And, you know, it's, and I could be that way too. And so sometimes I, you know, I, I don't always represent the things that I'm talking about here, but I try, you know, I try and be like, look, you're lovable and you're worthy of love. And so that's who you are. It's who you are. And, and that's what you're made for. You mentioned theology, and it also brought to mind the fact that I know you've studied Spanish, right, at an academic level, which not everybody does. Have you ever studied theology in Spanish? I can't say I've done that. Uh, I, yeah, I've studied both of them separately, but uh, yeah, that would be cool. I, it's I would nice when they come to together. That. The mystics are really cool because a lot of them were Spaniards, um, but it's pretty out there language, you can imagine. It's, it, you know, once you get into the more, uh, I've, I've tried reading uh, St. John of the Cross in Spanish and he just went way over my head. I'm like, okay, I got to read you in English. Even in English, he's, you know, just so deep and beautiful. <laughs> it's pretty heady stuff in whatever land. I mean, it's like, yeah, it's, it's, but in Spanish, it has just this particular kind of regal, you know, profundity to it. That's like, whoa, what is it? It's like, it kind of reads in stereo. You know what I mean? You're like, and I, and it's, you know, I'm fluent in Spanish because I'm, I'm Hispanic, but there's, you know, there's the conversational and familial kind of Spanish that we all grew up with. And then there's that, which is like, trigonometry or NASA. You know what I mean? It's it, it can be very beautiful and elegant and simple in some cases, but in other places it's like, whoa, man, that's crazy deep. That's how I felt reading, you know, some encyclicals or or theology books yeah. or philosophy, you know, it's super deep. And then because Spanish isn't my first language, anytime I've tried to read even okay honestly even if i read like a, a book and written for a fifth grader in spanish I, i'm struggling <laughs> you're doing it slowly yeah yes. it's funny that you mentioned the encyclicals too i forget who it was but um i love a good conversion story just as much as anybody does and there was this one oh, i can't remember who it was but it was somebody fairly contemporary person like a person who's well known who converted almost entirely from the reading from reading encyclicals from John Paul II or his motu proprios or stuff and it wasn't even the subject matter that 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 St John Paul was covering was secondary the primary thing was like i've never heard any human who speaks like this it was like this sense of awe of like there's got to be something going on if this guy can write this way it was really fascinating to hear his story that's incredible. And oh man, you're speaking my language. I I love John Paul II. But okay, so so favorite quote um, is it, his first encyclical, Redemptor Hominis. You have mm -hmm. to read it. It's just stunning. But he says, man cannot live without love. He remains a being that is incomprehensible to himself if he does not participate in love and make it his own. It blew my mind. And I was like, this is what I've thought for a long time and I've felt for a long time, but no one's ever put it into these words and I'm dead. This is, this is it. Yeah. This is life right here. Bingo. I mean, it's what happens when you read, you know, a, an incredible poem, right? Actually, same person that I mentioned earlier, Lawan. I mentioned to her, my definition of poetry is this idea of saying with few words, what many words can't. And that's, and that's a really 
there's something in that about the kind of writing that John Paul II, not just John Paul II, but from a contemporary setting, for sure he did, where like, you're reading this and you're like, I've kind of had, I've skirted around this, I've seen little shadows of this insight, and I've grasped at it and grasped at it, and here it is, right there, like served up to you, and you're like, boom, and it just impacts you forever. Here's another one for you, as long as we're trading them, and I mentioned this on a show not too long ago, but uh, is one from Dorothy Day, who I've really gotten into lately, and her quote was, because she was talking from a distinctly communist kind of background, that's where she came from, and she was trying to talk to a lot of her communist comrades, essentially, about becoming Christian, and they agreed on the importance of solidarity, and, there, and what she brought up was, there is no brotherhood of man without the fatherhood of God. Wow. And I was like, wow, literally like, boom, you know, so simple, but it's so true because it, it kind of gives you this idea of, well, why is brotherhood matter? Why does sisterhood matter? Why, why is it that locking arms means something? Because it points you to our common father. And I was like, whoa. That's incredible. Dorothy Day, she challenges me. You know, I think I'm like, I'm doing pretty well. And then I read some of her stuff and she's just so radical and living with the poor day in and day out and calling everyone on. And I'm like, oh, okay. All right. I gotta, I gotta get on this, man. She's, yeah, yeah she's, she's a boss. Like a, she's like the, like this whole radical orthodoxy that I think is so interesting because it really blows up that kind of political paradigm that I think a lot of Catholics, we make the mistake of living in. You know, and and she's like this way out there radical you know, social justice and all these things that, you know, a lot of people who may be on the more religious right may kind of blanch at. And at the same time, she's like, I believe it because the church says it and the church is right. And I'm following the church no matter what she says. And you're like, what? Which is kind of like runs a foul of what maybe progressive Christians may look at and go, you know, the, the patriarchy or whatever. So she's just this crazy example. And um I just think she's particularly important given what we're doing right now. You know what I mean? Like how we're living right now in this very kind of political lens that looking at her life may help us kind of shift beyond that or, or, or go beyond that. The saints do that. You know, they come from all of these crazy backgrounds and they have all of these cool stories and they they struggle and they're human and they're real. And so it, at a time when, you know, we have just a lot of tribalism and, and we're not yeah. really... Um, able to to recognize the the goodness of our brother because we're like oh why does he have such crazy opinions um, yeah I think she's she's a good example of someone who's like yo we all are we all you know we all belong to each other and we need to remember that I have uh, not next week but the week after on my show I have Martha Hennessy who's her granddaughter wow. Yeah. It's really cool. I, I, I'm learning a little bit about her, but um, she is, because um, Dorothy Day had one daughter, one child, and that one child had, I think, six children, brothers and sisters. And she is, um, she's one of those, so her grandma was Dorothy Day. And she's similarly activist, like, um, she was actually just, she was in prison the, for like eight or nine months just recently for protesting in a nuclear facility. I'm still doing my research, but it's like wild story. Um, but yeah, I just, I think we need, again, your, your point is a good one, right? The saints force us or welcome, you know, invite us to, uh, to kind of look at this fullness of what living a Christian witness really looks like, because it, it is kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's uncomfortable to, um, to the kind of strictures that other modalities would place on you, right? A political party or a whatever, you know what I mean? Some, some tribal thing, right? It's like, if you're wearing that too tight, you're going to be uncomfortable living a, a true Christian witness. It's just the reality. Right. Wherever you come from, whatever your backstory, whatever your political affiliation or your thought processor, whether you're a cradle Catholic or you are a convert, whatever, whatever it is, you belong to the church. And so, you know, you have to find a way to, to reconcile the church. And so uh, being Catholic comes first. And I, I think she's a good example of that, of saying like, yo, this is, this is who we are. And so I'm going to bring my Catholicism into the spaces that I inhabit. She was also a very big proponent of um, the importance of, you know, the witness of diversity, right? Of, of different cultures. And of course, living in a very different time, but um, you know, she was a big proponent of that. 
one of the things that in, in kind of prepping for this show that I found that you that you did, which I thought was really cool, um, because it ties into one of the reasons I started this show was to have great conversations with people who are out there who are, you know, in positions of influence and living their vocations in positions of influence, but people who have like a special love or affinity for, um, you know, for communities of, of color, for diverse folks, for that kind of thing. And, you know, you fall in that category in a number of different ways. Um, obviously you've got an affinity to the language, which is nice, but you also, um, developed a uh, an approach to reach out to minority women from a pro-life perspective which like I hadn't really seen I don't know if that's an active thing still but the fact that you did it um, I thought was really cool really interesting because I I, I, I I whenever I hear about black and Latino women and the pro-life position on that I usually hear it as a catastrophic statistic like isn't it terrible that so many black and Latino women are impacted by the reality of abortion. But it seemed like you were trying to give voice to some of those stories as opposed to use it just as a statistical reference. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what I saw from the polling and what I know just from personal experience, because, um, you know, growing up, uh, many, many of my friends are Latina and then living in LA, everybody's Latino. So, uh, you know, I just kept running into people who are pro-life. And I encountered these statistics that show 75% of Black and Latina women want abortion restricted or ended. Um, 60% of Latino immigrants believe that um, abortion is morally wrong. And you see, especially for low-income women as well, that the the vast majority are pro-life. Like they will personally identify as pro-life. And yet, we also know that communities of color are more greatly impacted by abortion. So what I saw is I was, I was looking at this and I'm thinking, okay, we have so many pro-life women of color and yet I'm not seeing their stories told. And that's True. not fair because they're more pro-life than the, 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 the general population. So I just wanted to try and create a space that would allow women to, to be able to tell their stories, especially underrepresented women. You know, I invited my friend who's a airline pilot I invited a friend who's a stunt woman and another friend who, um, you know, is a singer and just people with, with interesting stories and who identify as pro-life. And there are so many women like them. You know, I, I, I just, it, it blew me away. And I, I really thought, okay, we need to just to open this conversation. And I kind of stepped away from doing that, but I've seen just really an explosion of uh, this, this kind of conversation from Latinas and from, from Black women who are saying, we're pro-life. We have a massive community of pro-life Black women, pro-life Latina women. And we, we want to be able to tell this because, um, you know, so often I think uh, when it comes to, to the, the conversation around abortion, uh, people automatically assume, well, okay, communities of color need abortion or, you know, low-income women need abortion. And that's that's so wrong. It actually is a symptom of privilege to say that women of color want abortion because it's not true. The, the yeah. polling shows us that that these are exactly the communities that are most opposed to abortion. And so honestly, it, it angered me that we're trying to promote abortion in the names of women that don't want it at all. So I was like, okay, now we need to flip the script and say, listen, these, these this is this is not the case. Actually, these are pro-life women. And their their stories deserve to be told and they deserve to be seen. I think it also zeroes in on a principle that is people, there's a, there's a different response when to a, to a, to a particular issue or, or, or interest. If you see someone that looks like you has your kind of ex lived experience engaging in that thing, right? So as an example, if you're creating a piece of content for social media addressing one of the stories that you just identified and I'm that person who's kind of representative of that story you're telling it's going to be more resonant than if it wasn't and I'm not just guessing at this like I've actually learned this in my kind of secular professional life that creating especially in the way we communicate now with social content creating stories that have you know protagonists antagonists etc players characters that look like and have this and have the same lived experiences 
of people who you're trying to illustrate and trying to kind of bring up, it's going to be more resonant to those audiences. It just works that way. So it seems really natural to me that if you have this huge contingency of women who are pro-life from these communities, yet the stories we're telling, the ways that we're trying to speak to them, et cetera, are not in that light, that you're missing kind of a big opportunity. Yes, it's true. You want to see yourself represented in media and and you you want to see people that you relate to. And I think for so many pro-life women who are women of color, they they often what's often represented is the pro-life movement is old religious white men or it's just white women. And that's just not the case. You know, it's mm. it's it's actually quite the opposite that that women of color are profoundly pro-life and they are leading the pro-life movement. And so seeing that visually resonates with with other women of color who are like, oh, okay, yeah, because this is this is me, but I just haven't seen this before. I haven't seen people yeah. like me, it, you know, leading this movement. I think we also get caught up in in a lot of, you know, you, you talked about kind of dogs and John Paul II being a couple of your pulpits that you stand on. One of the ones that I stand on is the idea of how to engage with the Latino community. And there's a lot of instant kind of going to language as a strategy. And that's not always the way to do it, right? Um, you're, the friends that you mentioned that you did this with, I'm sure that they're bilingual, but if they're your age, then they're talking in English to their friends. And so having something be in culture, but not necessarily in language could be a strategy, right? And I think in the pro-life movement, there are very big um, sectors of pro-life activity in the for for Latinos by Latinos in the U.S., but they tend to to be oriented around communities that are more um, uh, you know less acculturated, first generation, recent immigrant, that kind of thing, and that's awesome. I affirm that we need that. But what isn't there as much is maybe for your friends that you were talking about. And I think I know who the stunt woman might be. She's actually coming on the show. We'll see if it's the same stunt woman. Is it Brenda? It's Brenda. Yeah, She's of course. an uh, absolute boss. But let's. But she is a boss. But let's use her as an example. Like, I'm, I'm sure she's fluent. I've never talked to her in Spanish, but I'm sure she knows Spanish. But that's not the point. The point is she's living her, you know, being her Latina culture, you know, and she's living it in, in you know, in a brought up in the U.S. context. And so we have to communicate these things in a different way. Absolutely. Yeah. You see this for, you know, especially, yeah, second generation or third generation immigrants. Um, my Most of my friends fall into those categories. And so you're just like, the, everybody wants to see themselves represented. Everybody wants to see themselves um, in in media and, and in communication and in culture. And when you see that, you're like, yeah, that's me. I, re I relate to that. And if you don't see that, then it seems like there's not a space for you. And so mm. I think that just knowing the, the reverse, that it's, it might seem like there's not a space, just makes the urgency all that more real. So yeah, I'm glad that you, you know, this is your soapbox because it needs to be said. How, how is that principle, if at all, how does that apply to kind of the work that you're doing with the California bishops? I think, you know, when, when we're talking about um, inviting people into the conversation and, and doing outreach and when it comes to, to bills, you know, ultimately it's like, okay, who, who are the constituents of each of these legislators? Um, and in California, we have massive Latino population. And so um, we want to make sure that, you know, our outreach is yes to, to Spanish speakers, but also to, you know, those second and third generation immigrants who, you know, may speak Spanish, they may not, you know, people who are more my age or my generation and want to contact their representatives, but have maybe never been invited. So trying to just expand that vision of who, who are, who is the pro-life community? Um, who is the, the Catholic community and who can we reach when it comes to, you know, contacting the representatives and saying, Hey, we're here. And these are the things that matter to us. You know, whether it's fighting physician assisted suicide, whether it's supporting families, you know, saying, hey, this is this is important to us as the Catholic community. And if you have this massive, you know, 11 million Catholics in the state, you want to make sure that the that though that that the the diversity and the breadth of that um, in each district is being represented and is 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 invited to the table um, to, to contact the representatives and and make their voice heard. What's the biggest risk you think we're facing right now in California as it relates to the mission that you're trying to achieve? Biggest risk. 
that's a hard one. I, I, I think I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I think that's more my, my concern is like, I, I've known some of the, the issues that we've, we've already had, for example, physician assisted suicide is legal here. Um, we did just try and fight a bill that was going to expand it. Uh, I, I think, um, I think, you know, a big risk, honestly, might be that uh, we, we don't have uh, people open to people thinking that there's there's a need to contact the representatives or mm. or seeing seeing that the the the, the, the urgency of that. Um, so I think just trying to make sure that everyone's invited to that conversation is important. And then, yeah, trying to I think. Burnout can be a lot of a, a big deal for people, especially when they've contacted the re representatives over and over, and they think they're not listening. And so, I can tell anyone who wants to know that yes, your representative they have to read every single letter you send. They have to listen to every single phone call. I was an intern in the U.S. Senate, and so that was my job. I hand entered every single constituent letter, email, phone call, had to hmm. listen to all of them. And so those are in a database. Uh, the boss comes in and is like, hey, what are people saying today? Anytime you get a form letter back, it's because someone on staff had to write that form letter because you contacted them and they're like, shoot, okay, I gotta, I gotta write them something and say, here's, here's what my representative is you know, saying about this. So first of all, you have an impact in that way. And second, your calls, they, they matter because sometimes you're, the, the legislator might be like, oh, okay, so many people are upset about this or so many people are excited about this. Um, but especially when you're upset about something, they might yeah. back off on uh, a, an issue. They might not push it so hard. They might tell leadership, hey, I'm going to vote for this, but you should back off on this. We don't really want this to go through. So there are so many ways it can it can change. Or in the future, they might say, you know, I voted for this in the past, but, you know, please don't bring this kind of a bill again because, you know, my constituency didn't like it. There's a lot of backroom things that happen um, just in the legislature that you don't see. So, yeah, don't don't stop um, calling. Actually, like your calls really do make a difference. And your legislator mm. does have to listen to every person that contacts them. It's interesting, too, because, um, and for the record, Molly, I'm happy you're Team California. No offense to our friends in Maryland, but the way that I look at it is, you know, the country is influential on the global stage. California is influential to the country. What A lot of what happens in California is like a preview of what's going to happen elsewhere in the country. And then consequently, elsewhere in the world. So to me, going all the way upstream and working in California, having people like you having these conversations, I think has a long and fruitful, God willing, downstream impact. It really does. The state has tremendous global impact, too, just with the size of the, the California economy and, and the size. We have 40 million people in this state. That's that's not small potatoes. You know, we're a big player. And so, yeah, I it's exciting to be in such a such a, a massive player in the state and, you know, being able to have these these kind of conversations that matter. You know, talk about things that that matter to human beings, that matter to families, that matter to Catholics and be able to kind of move the needle on some of them or, or initiate change. It's it's exciting. It's really cool. Because people are awesome. Humans are awesome. So why, Humans why are not? Humans are awesome. Well, that's super cool. Um, Molly, all good things eventually come to an end. So I know we got to get you on your way. We're going to play Wait What before we do. But I know you're recently now moved over to California. And maybe you're in the midst of kind of moving around your logistics and how people can get in contact and follow your work and all that. But we'll include all this stuff in the show notes. But how should folks... Um, follow your work, stay in touch, know what you're doing. They can check out the California Catholic Conference. Um, that would be the best way to, to get in touch with me if you have um, any uh, thoughts or you know hate mail, like send it all that way. Um, and then also uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter. So just uh, follow me. It should be at Molly Sushi and you'll find me. Very cool. 
And then, as I mentioned, uh, very glad that you've made the move and that you're a team in California. I'm looking forward to you uh, positively influencing all of these, uh, you know, great conversations, legislations, debates, because we need people um, with that purview to the awesomeness of human beings in that position. And I'm glad you're there. Thank you. Yeah. West Coast, best coast. That's it. All right. Are you ready to play Wait What, Molly? Oh, yeah. Let's do it. All right. Let's do it. We actually didn't talk about this, but one of your adoptive homes, I guess, on some level is Ecuador. You spent some time in Ecuador, right? I did. Okay. So, Molly, which of these is false about your adoptive home of Ecuador? Number one, it's the most biodiverse country on the planet. Number two, on Good Friday, men dressed in purple, pointed hats, and masks march in procession. Or number three, Ecuador is known as the lily capital of the world. Which of these is false about Ecuador? It's not the most biodiverse. I believe that's Costa Rica. Okay. So your answer is number one. Yeah. And, you know, mileage may vary on here because I, I guess it depends on the source. Who can really tell what biodiversity looks like? But the, the source that I looked at actually said that Ecuador was the most biodiverse country on the planet. It has more tree, amphibian, and bat species in only 100 kilometers than anywhere else in the world. So that actually, at least in this game, is not the correct answer. The correct answer is number three. Ecuador is known as the orchid capital of the world, not the lily capital of the world. It has over 4,000 species, 25,000 different varietals, and anyway, lots of orchids apparently in Ecuador. So, And the crazy part about the, the middle one, there actually is noon on Good Friday in Quito. Did you live in Quito when you were there? No, I was uh, in Santa Elena province, so on the coast, um, okay. close to Montanita. It's, it's, it's about an hour from Guayaquil. Got it. Well, then you missed the Cucuruchos, which are a group, hundreds of men, who march in purple robes and pointed masked headdresses in a procession, in what's called a procession of the penitents, through Quito's historic district at noon on Good Friday every year. Now, what the significance of purple pointed hats is, I have no idea, but it actually does happen. I, um, so that one is true as well. There you wow. go. Okay. Question number two, Molly. You're doing great. Doing great. Ready? In this moment of awareness of our black brothers and sisters, um, we can often bring to mind the great Saint Paquita. Are you a devotee of Saint Paquita, Molly? She You're is holding my your... girl. I love her. All right. Okay, great. Now, most people know this saint. They know about her miraculous story. She was abducted. She was enslaved in her home country of Sudan. She was brought against her will to Europe, where she eventually became Christian. She gained her freedom, and she became a religious uh, sister. But what many people don't know is that Bakita was not her given name. Instead, it was the name given to her by her captors. And in a twist of divine irony, the name Bakita in Arabic means blank. What does it mean in Arabic? It means lucky or fortunate one. Yes, very nice. So you're one of, you really are a devotee then, Molly, because most people don't know that one. That's very true. And in fact, she actually, when she was baptized, she took the name Fortunata in Italian, um, as well as her other names uh, to kind of honor that. So yeah, very good. All right, so you're batting 500, rounding out here for number three, but this one you're guaranteed to get right because Molly, there's always a time machine question. So here we go. You travel back to Italy in the middle of the 14th century, where fairly quickly you meet a laywoman, just like you, who is lobbying the state and religious authorities of the day. Her name is Catherine. We know her today as St. Catherine of Siena, a doctor of the church. She invites you to join her in a mission to advocate to the Pope to use his authority wisely, a radical suggestion at the time. Understandably, though, she's a bit concerned about her lobbying and that how it will be perceived by the Pope and other powers that be. In a moment of vulnerability, she turns to you, Molly, and asks for a word of advice. Before you whisk back to 2021, what advice do you offer St. Catherine? I would tell her what I tell myself every day, which is fake it till you make it. Own that confidence. <laughs> Love it. That's great. That's a good one. Uh, she probably have would have to see how the fake it would translate, fake it till you make it, but the, but the sentiment works beautifully well, and I'm sure that uh, that would be good advice for her. Awesome. Well, Molly, thanks for being on the show. It was a real privilege to have you. Keep doing what you're doing, um, and uh, we wish you, obviously, a lot of prosperity, and we'll pray that your efforts are always successful. 
Thanks, Deacon Charlie. It was great being with you. Awesome. And if you're hearing our voices, please remember to subscribe to this show, share this show with friends, those that you love, help the show to grow. We'll see you again next time on Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's call-usa.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Castan and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.